This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to New Books in History, a channel on the New Books Network. I'm your host, Michael Van of Sacramento State University, but please call me Mike. Today, my guest is Dr. Viet Thanh Nguyen of the University of Southern California, where he is the Errol Arnold Chair of English and Professor of English and American Studies and Ethnicity. Professor Nguyen is the author of several books, including Race and Resistance, Literature and Politics in Asian America, and Nothing Ever Dies, Vietnam and the Memory of War. About a year ago, I got to chat with him about Nothing Ever Dies here on the New Books Network, so check the archives for that interview. He also edited Trans-Pacific Studies, Framing an Emerging Field with Janet Hoskins. He has a collection of short stories called The Refugees and an edited volume called uh, The Displaced, Refugee Writers on Refugee Lives. He also co-wrote Chicken of the Sea, but I suspect his co-author Allison did most of the heavy lifting on that one. Uh, this is a children's book that was illustrated by the amazing T. Bui and her son, uh, Hien Bui Stafford. Today, we'll be talking about his two novels, The Sympathizer and The Committed. The former won the Pulitzer Prize for Fiction and definitely contributed to Professor Nguyen uh, winning both a Guggenheim and a MacArthur Genius Grant. Congratulations. Um, the second is the sequel to the first, carrying the story from Southern California and Southern Vietnam to Paris, France, by way of a refugee boat in the South China Sea. Viet Thanh Nguyen, welcome back to New Books in History. Hi, Mike. Thanks so much for having me again. Yeah. So um, I, again, I'm, I'm a big fan. I, I fanboyed out on you hard last time, but I'm, hopefully I'm not going to, uh, I'll be a bit more professional this time. <laughs> but again, it's, it's, it's great to, uh, to chat with you. Um, and I want to start with a question I've been dying to ask you, and this this will be my big fanboy question here. Um, can you suggest a beverage pairing for these novels? Last summer, you tweeted out a series of cocktails paired with various books and um, uh, drinks and, and uh, figure heavily in the novels. Um, I loved the guilt and shame cocktail in The Committed, but I definitely do not want to try that one. Um what would you serve with the sympathizer and uh, with the committed? Oh, I think that that answer is very simple. If you want to be genuinely authentic, we're not really mixologists in Vietnamese culture. We basically drink beer, wine, and cognac. That's that's the, the magic trio. So if you want beer and you want the authentic thing, try to find your Bami Bao or 33 beer. Um, if you can't find that, then tiger beer is a good substitute because that's what I drank a lot of when I was in Saigon. And if you can't find tiger beer, then just a Singaporean get, beer. Yeah, Singaporean, a beer, Singaporean beer, you know. Beer. I mean, obviously okay. the Vietnamese themselves, being in Vietnam, they may not have a lot of uh, fetishization of Bami Ba beer because they didn't get it any time. So tiger was more popular and beyond that, like Heineken. Everybody just wanted to drink Heineken when I was there. So that's easy enough. And if you want to drink wine, take any red wine and put an ice cube in it because that's how the Vietnamese like to drink it in tropical Vietnam. But really, the, the, the best thing to do is get yourself a bottle of cognac. And there's many wonderful varieties of cognac out there. But for whatever reason, the Vietnamese really like a couple of different brands, maybe due to effective marketing uh, in Vietnam or in the diaspora. And those brands are Remy Martin and Hennessy. 
And if you want to do the the bargain route, I mean, bargain is a relative term, but uh, either either one, VSOP, it's about $35 a bottle, is what you typically get at a Vietnamese wedding. But if you want to get real fancy, you have to get the XO level of either Remy or Hennessy. That'll run you about $100 to $150 a bottle. And if you go into a lot, a lot of Vietnamese homes, they will prominently display their bottle of XO on a shelf, spotlit, behind glass. It's always a full bottle, and I've never figured out whether it's actually full of the liquor or a substitute after they've drunk the very expensive liquor. Um, but I, I quite enjoy a snifter of any of that stuff uh, when 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 I when I'm nostalgic. But finally, if you want to mix it, then you know you do the Vietnamese wedding thing, which is and basically it's a highball, but we never called it that because we didn't know it was called a highball. But you pour some cognac into a, a glass with some ice, and then you top it off with 7-Up or Coca-Cola, and it goes down real easy. Okay. Those are solid pairings. I, I started uh, the committed with a bit of um, port, and then uh, I, I tweeted that, and I think you shamed me saying I would need something stronger. So I finished with um, uh, Oban's Little Bay uh, Not bad. I like for the last couple chapters. Uh, I thought that was, a, that was a good pairing. That was my – I'm an amateur at this. Um, uh let me ask you a bit more serious question. Um, and you, you, you brought up uh, some aspects of the um, Viet Q or Vietnamese diaspora culture. And I, I was wondering about uh, if you could say a few words on the politics of the community, especially um, the significance of a date. Um, this podcast set to be released on April 30th, and this is a significant date in Vietnamese history and in the Vietnamese diaspora. Could you say a few words on April 30th? Sure. Well, I have to talk about it in the Vietnamese American context because I'm not sure how significant April 30th is to other diasporic Vietnamese communities in other countries. And certainly in France, since you know the committed is set in France, there there is a divided sense of politics there that doesn't exist as much in the United States. The United States, deeply anti-communist country, welcomes Vietnamese refugees fleeing from a suddenly communist Vietnam. And the Vietnamese refugees who came here were, were almost completely anti-communist. Now that has changed a little bit over the years because now, you know, we have a younger generation that's that's perhaps less attached to anti-communism and we have Vietnamese immigrants who have come here for a variety of reasons and are perhaps less hostile to communism in some cases as well. But the overwhelming tenor of the community is anti-communist, at least in the public sense. And so April 30th has become a really significant landmark anniversary for a large number of the Vietnamese American community who call it Black April. I'm not fond of this term, but it's a term meant to commemorate, meant to signify that the date of April 30th is the end of the Republic of Vietnam or South Vietnam, a day of infamy for these Vietnamese refugees. And they use April 30th as a way of commemorating the Republic of Vietnam and, and in many ways celebrating the Vietnamese diaspora in the United States as the de facto cultural capital of this, uh, this lost nation. And so especially if you go to the heart of this capital, which is Little Saigon in Orange County, where there's an entire Vietnam War Memorial dedicated both to American soldiers and South Vietnamese soldiers. On April 30th, there's usually a big ritual uh, commemoration with many people, men and women, coming out in full military uniform to commemorate this this date and this, this country. So it's a very meaningful um, uh, commemoration for many Vietnamese people who feel that they've been erased in Vietnam, which they have been, and forgotten in the United States, which they have been. Yeah, and that that resonates with um, with something that we saw happen a few months ago on January sixth, when the um, 
the the Trump mob uh, stormed the Capitol. And, um, you know, those of us who are watching it real time who who know Vietnam and Vietnamese history were initially surprised, um, but maybe not that surprised after all to see the South Vietnamese flag, the Republic of the Flag of Vietnam being flown in the crowds um, um, as part of this sort of, uh, you know, <laughs> anti-left, anti communist sort of you know the, the the incredible hyperbole being thrown at um biden and the democrats um what what, what was your, what was your reaction to that i know you were you were active on social media responding to those images well anybody who was following vietnamese american politics in the last year or two during the era of the trump administration was aware uh that there's a large degree of support in the vietnamese american community for donald trump and everything that he represents. And Vietnamese American Trump supporters are as fervent as every other Trump supporter about their their man and that that particular cause. So in some ways, I guess it was not a surprise that there apparently was a fairly sizable contingent of Vietnamese Americans who went to the Capitol, at least to hear the the presidential speech. And for some, I don't know how many, to go to the, the Capitol itself. And at least one Vietnamese American was arrested inside the Capitol, a Houston police officer. So the the you know, deeply anti-conservative, anti-communist politics of a substantial part of the Vietnamese American population, I think, I've evidently translated well into a support for Donald Trump because a lot of Vietnamese Americans and people in Vietnam as well support Trump because apparently of his supposedly strong anti-China stance and China plays a significant role in the Vietnamese imagination. Uh, also, it's hard not to believe that um, Vietnamese Americans um, have also absorbed some of the the racism and, and the, the white supremacy of the Trump movement. Um, we've seen that, I think, in lesser degrees over the course of Vietnamese American history. You know, Vietnamese Americans, like every other immigrant and refugee group, have learned how to be Americans partly by absorbing anti-Black racism. And so there must be that present as well. But, you know, they were also flying the South Vietnamese flag. Now, that's a very particular manifestation of something. And I thought, that it was a manifestation of nostalgia. Um, and when I say nostalgia, I'm talking about this in the Svetlana Boym sense in her book, The Future of Nostalgia. She talks about different kinds of nostalgia. One, one thing that she mentions is what she calls restorative nostalgia, this idea that we want to go back to the past and restore it completely. And growing up in the Vietnamese refugee community, I felt that this was a pretty accurate definition of Vietnamese American politics. Um, now, nostalgia does not, it has a very specific sense that it's, it's literally a homesickness that can kill you. And I think that's actually a very accurate description of uh, a certain number of Vietnamese Americans uh, who felt such a degree of loss and pain and melancholy for uh, their missing country that it bordered on this kind of a homesickness which led to all kinds of extremist um, politics and statements in, in the Vietnamese American community. So waving this particular flag was not only a symbol of supporting white supremacy, but it, it brought, I think, all these other connotations of a desire to restore South Vietnam that somehow aligns perfectly well with every other set of politics that's going on in the Trump movement, which is nostalgic as well, and nostalgia for a moment of white supremacy and the Confederacy because there was Confederate flag or more than one Confederate flag being waved there. So there's some alignment between the nostalgia that the South Vietnamese feel and the nostalgia that some white people feel for uh, lost South. 
Yeah, and I also th- thought that the image uh, resonated with um, the way in which other sort of global anti-communist uh, symbols have been reappropriated. So amongst the alt-right, um, uh, you'll see these, you know, Proud Boys and, and whatnot um, wearing T-shirts uh, with a helicopter with somebody being thrown out uh, with a reference to Pinochet in Chile and um, and the, the Argentinian junta. Uh, throwing um, uh, arrested leftists out of helicopters over the Pacific or the Atlantic Ocean, and I think, uh, in some ways, that like the maybe the the, the Republican flag of, of Vietnam, South Vietnam, um, has become the sort of you know signifier that can be reappropriated for various alt right causes. Just as you know, I don't think your average Pinochet could like tell you that much about Pinochet. Or about the politics or the DM regime, other than anti-communist. Um, and I, I asked about this because the, um, uh, we'll get into the book in a few minutes. But the the uh, one of the characters, uh, the main characters in the book, is this die-hard anti-communist uh, figure named named Bon. Um, now, before we get into the two novels, could you just tell us a little bit about yourself? Um, I ask because um, in your role as a public intellectual, um, you really stress the importance of your identity and your positionality. Um, and I think knowing your story um, helps shapes how we read these novels. Well, I was born in Vietnam, uh, came to the United States as a refugee in 1975, along with a lot of other Vietnamese people, <laughs> including my family, obviously. And um, grew up in a Vietnamese refugee community in San Jose, California, where in the 1970s and the 1980s, where I was very deeply aware of myself as a Vietnamese refugee and all the issues that we just talked about, because I remember going to things like the debt celebrations and, and church, Catholic Vietnamese Catholic church. And there would always be an overlay of nationalism and nostalgia and the yellow flag and the, and the anthem of the old country. So I was very aware of Vietnamese refugee memories and Vietnamese refugee feelings and all of their complexity and their tragedy. And then I was also growing up as an American. So I was also aware of, of being an Asian, increasingly being an Asian American. You know, I wouldn't have a name for this until I went to college, but I certainly had a growing sense of my racial difference in this society, which was reinforced by things like Vietnam War movies, of which I saw most that Hollywood was making in the, in the 70s and 80s. And so, you know, me becoming a writer in college or starting to dream of becoming a writer in college was was wrapped up with trying to figure out this history of the refugee experience of the Vietnam War and myself as an as an Asian American. And I would say that, you know, my my career over the last 30 years has been defined by those particular kinds of issues. Um, I've written, you know, I've specialized in Asian American literature as an academic, but now also memory and the the war in Vietnam, Laos, and Cambodia, and the, these novels and and the short story collection, The Refugees, are all about talking about the war and the refugee experience together. And I think that my position on these issues is is perhaps different than a lot of Americans, because I contest the American point of view, and different than a lot of Vietnamese Americans who would not brook any kind of sympathy with communism. And yet, in these works, I express sympathy for both Vietnamese refugees and Vietnamese communists as well. And the last thing I'll say about this is that I think that now in, um, in what I'm dealing with, especially with the committed, maybe there's a shift in my thinking um, of, of emphasis that you know I've been, I've been focused a lot on domestic issues of anti-Asian racism and Asian-American integration and all this stuff around multiculturalism and American politics and all of that. But the, the Committed is very much a novel about colonization, what the French did in Vietnam, 
and uh, what the Americans did by taking over French colonization in 19, uh, from 1945 to 1954. And that question of colonization is tied to the question of me being an American citizen in the United States that is a country built on colonization that is arguably still colonizing, if you ask indigenous peoples here. And so my, 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 my current thinking is about much more on, this, on the line of this question of colonization and, and then decolonization as the larger problematic that I'm interested in. I mean, none, none of the other, all the other issues, issues are still important to me, but I, increasingly I think of them as falling under this, this broader rubric of decolonization as a way of connecting the experiences of refugees, of uh, racial minorities, Asian Americans, with those of other peoples of color in the United States and the, the situations of other colonized and formerly colonized peoples elsewhere. Yeah, as as a historian of colonialism in Southeast Asia, I was pretty excited when uh, the second you you engage that topic in the second novel. Um, so why did why did you turn to fiction? Um, I mean, you've you your academic conventional academic writing is is excellent. Your um, nothing ever dies was shortlisted for a national book award. Again, uh, listeners, check out the the podcast from about a year ago where we talk about that book. Um, you know the the writing in there, on, particularly on film, American films about the American War in Vietnam, or you know, I think some of those chapters are just fantastic. But what, why did you turn to fiction? What what did you think that you could do with fiction that you couldn't do with conventional academic prose? Well, I don't have to footnote myself in fiction. So I mean, nothing ever <laughs> dies was a novel, was a book that took you know a dozen years and more to research and and then eventually to write, and it's not written in your conventional academic fashion. So I did learn a lot from fiction writing and. And brought it into that book, but I, nevertheless, I still had to do a lot of footnoting in that book to support the kinds of arguments that I was making about memory and ethics and so on. Now, fiction was that was always actually my first love. I mean, I don't know who grows up thinking, "Hey, I'm I'm ten years old and I want to be a professor." I mean, unless you're the child of a professor, that I don't. How do you how do you think about that? I, I have no inclination. I'm raising my hand because I because I did, <laughs> but then again. I'm the child of a professor, so maybe I'm proving your point. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but I was a child of you know refugee shopkeeper parents, and so I had no idea what a doctorate was, no idea what a professor was. I had no idea what I was getting into when I when I went to graduate school. I, I went to graduate school because I didn't know what else to do with my life, and uh, you know I thought, oh, I, I got a fellowship, and and uh, they'll pay me to to read some books and do something for a few years, and that was great. But I wanted to be a writer, and the the writing part, I had to take a detour from that because I wasn't a very good writer in college. And I was pragmatic, so I thought I have to get a job, might as well become a professor. Sounds, sounds like something that I could do. And then I got tenure, and my ambition was always to go back to writing fiction. That's exactly what happened, but it, you know, it took a long time to become a good uh, fiction writer. But seriously, I don't have to footnote myself. So in The Committed and The Sympathizer, these are books of criticism masked as fiction. Um, so I had to find the appropriate kind of fictional devices and so on to do this to make sure that it worked. It wasn't just a professor ventriloquizing through fiction, but these these are novels that work as novels, but they also work as criticism. And in that function as criticism, I get to say all kinds of things that, I, you know, a lot of things I believe in, in the voice of my narrator, the sympathizer, things that I believe to be true, but I don't have to prove them. So you either have to accept them or not accept them, but I don't have to go through extensive footnotes to demonstrate certain kinds of claims that I'm making in these books. So uh, fiction can be an entertaining way of provoking readers with ideas. Not all fiction does that, but the, in these two novels, that's the mode that I wanted to deploy. Yeah, and and the the books could be footnoted. <laughs> I mean, I, I recognize certain sections here and there, um, and uh, and then in, at the end, you have a little section where uh, in the committed um, 
you do this, and I think you do it for the sympathizer too, where you you reference some of the uh, the works that uh, influenced your thinking. And I mean, essentially, you've got a little bibliography at the end of the novel, um, similar to uh, I think what Salman Rushdie did with um, uh, the book on Florence and India. Uh, or Amatif Ghosh does with his uh, his novels, like the Ibis trilogy. Um, I know you regularly cite Ralph Ellison's uh, Invisible Man as an important book for your thinking. Um, who else influenced your your writing style and your your choices? Well, I mean, Dostoevsky was a big influence on Ellison's Invisible Man, and so and I already was you know was aware of Dostoevsky before Ellison, but it made sense that I was influenced both by Dostoevsky and Ellison. Similar set of concerns about you know, uh, deeply alienated individuals struggling against their own societies uh, and, you know, engaged in first person monologues or, or confessions and the very act of confession itself in those books. I, you know, because one of the defining experiences of, of, of Vietnamese refugees is that many of them had to go through re-education and the confessional experience there. And, and so I wanted to be able to use that, that, you know, basically a literary form that had been totally politicized and use it for my own very literary and political purposes. Um, for for the sympathizer, I was also you know deeply influenced by Louis Ferdinand Celine's Journey to the End of the Night, uh, 1920s era modernist classic from France. And Celine was apparently not the nicest guy in the world, to put it to put it lightly. But I don't have to worry about that. He's dead, you know. And I have his novel, and I approach his novel without knowing anything about him. And so, regardless of whatever he said and did uh, around, uh, you know anti-Semitism and so on, uh, the, I think the novel remains for me as uh, an important literary kind of a, of, a, of a touchstone. And there's so many other works that these books allude to. So in The Committed, I try to leave a lot of literary traces in, in because actual names are being cited and mentioned in that book. And because it's a book that's set in France, I wanted to engage a lot with French literary uh, and philosophical culture. The French are very proud, rightfully so, of of their literary and philosophical accomplishments. And I wanted my novel to engage with that and also to rebut some of these things or to revise them. So running throughout the committed, there's a lot of commentary and allusions to Voltaire and to Rousseau and to Sat and to the decolonizing thinkers that were, you know, colonized by France, like Amy Césaire and France Fanon. Um, and so, yeah, there's, there's a wealth of, of literary allusions more than I can recount at the present moment running through both of these books. Yeah, and you know, as as someone who's trained, you know, was originally trained in French history and sat, you know, went through a number of uh, French literature seminars and theory seminars at UC Santa Cruz. I mean, it was this is the kind of reading that you know I really get to nerd out on, like, oh, here's who he's referencing and so forth. Um, and so th- these novels engage a huge range of social issues, um, anti-Asian racism being one of the most important. And, you, you know, as you know, you, you cite a number of intellectuals, Fanon, Kristeva. I mean, you have you have a character uh, without spoiling too much. Uh, uh, he's, a, he's a bouncer in a, in a brothel who's reading um, uh, post-colonial theory and he's reading Fanon and and others. Um, and they, they figure prominently in, in in the works. But these are also. The novels are also genre pieces. Um, they're spy novels, and the this the committed is is you know it's it's part spy novel, part mafia story, organized crime, right? Um, and they're they're funny, they're they're really funny, and at times the humor is risque, it's vulgar, and in a scene that I will not describe for the listeners in the committed, it is they're literally scatological humor. Um, um, why did you mix these extremely serious discussions with this fun and, you know, at times sort of lowbrow um, uh, humor and genre? 
Well, as Ralph Ellison says, quoting Popeye, I am who I am. So that's who I am. I mean, like I'm, I'm a, I'm an academic, you know, who's very serious and very rational and, and I behave myself very well in academic situations from department meetings to conferences and all of that. But underneath there's somebody else, you know, who's, who, who has a sense of humor that's oftentimes vulgar and scatological. Um, and I have to repress that to, or I've had to repress that to survive in academia, but it's always been there. So to me, it's perfectly natural to have both, you know, philosophy and theory and also an interest in B movies and pulp fiction and violence and vulgarity and all that kind of thing. And I'm very proud of the fact that I was invited to give, um, to be part of a, a presidential plenary at the Modern Language Association right before the pandemic hit. I was up there with like Gayachi Spivak, for example, like one of my definitive theoretical role models. And I stood up in front of all these people at the MLA. I don't know, there was probably a thousand people in the room. And I, I hope that I gave the speech with the most fucks ever said at the MLA, certainly at the presidential plenary. Um, and that felt like a, like a coming out for me, like, hey, this is who I am. And I've always thought this way. I've just had to repress myself for your sake and not for mine. And so, you know, these novels are demonstrations of the merging of high and low culture. I'm not interested in the middle brow. I mean, the middle brow is, is completely uninteresting to me. And it feels like so much of you know contemporary American fiction is totally middle brow, and looks down on the low brow so called genre fiction as somehow not being literary, and can't deal with the so called high brow like philosophy and theory. And so one of the responses that I've seen to this to this novel, the committed in the handful of reviews I, that I've allowed myself to see, is that some people are, are remarking on the presence of philosophy in these books in this book. And saying, well, this is a little weird. You know, it seems it seems to disrupt the fiction or whatever take they're having. I'm like, why, why, why do you think this? You know, like in what world is it not permissible to talk about philosophy in your fiction, except in a world that says we can't discuss ideas explicitly in fiction? So there's all these kinds of rules in both the, in the world of academia and, and in the world of American fiction that I find just you know really dumb. And honestly, and and I, I find it fun to bring them into close contact with each other and that the friction. Uh, between the high and the low, between the serious and the scatological, is uh, provocative and entertaining, and certainly enjoyable. Enjoyable for me to write. Yeah, and it makes me think of uh, two things. One, again, without giving away too much, there's a very probably the most most cathartic paragraph at, uh, in the committed is the "fuck you, thank you" paragraph. Um, and I, I don't want to give away too much, but I, 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 I as I as I read it, I, I think that's that's what what you're getting at there. Um, and also, there's this great Salman Rushdie quote that I think I got on a uh, a bookmark from an independent bookstore. They, you know, back when we used to have independent bookstores, uh, where Salman Rushdie said, "You know, who says I can't talk about Homer's Iliad and Homer Simpson in the same sentence?" <laughs> and um, he, I think he he was, you know, someone who I read earlier on, who I think really like excited me about the mixing of serious intellectual work with lowbrow fun. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I, I wish I had said that. <laughs> but in fact, I, I, I do quote Salman Rushdie in The Committed. I read um, from, his, from his collection, Imaginary Homelands, the opening essay. I think the title is Nothing is Sacred. Uh, you know, he asked the question, is nothing sacred? And, he, he, you know, this is all around, obviously, the question of the controversy around satanic verses. Uh, and, he, and, in, and in the end, he says, no, nothing is sacred to to the writer. And uh, if you read The Committed, by the end, I think Nothing is Sacred is a line that, that is in there. Um, I was thinking specifically about, about Rushdie, but Nothing is Sacred fits very much into the theme, one of the themes that runs through both of these books about nothingness and the complexities found in the idea of nothing.
exactly. Yeah. I got, I got to meet, uh, Salman Rushdie once, uh, and, um, uh, we share the same birthday, June 19th, Juneteenth, uh, 20, exactly 20 years apart. And I thought that he, and I, at that time, Midnight's Children was my favorite novel ever. And, um, I, uh, you know, I brought it for him to sign and, and was very excited to tell him that. And, I think I freaked him out a little bit. <laughs> There's a couple of pictures where he's like starting to pull away, like, okay, move this guy along. <laughs> but um, uh, could you say a little bit more about the spy genre as a metaphor for exploring the politics of identity? Um, if, I, if I'm reading that right. I mean, some of the things you said previously about, you know, um, you know, growing up with, uh, you know, what, what some call the hyphenated identity, right? Mm. Being of two worlds um, and your character, the main character is is a man with two minds, and that that works in several different registers. But could you say something uh, about this in terms of it, it as a tool to explore identity politics? Sure. I mean, the committed is a, is a crime novel uh, because he's no longer a spy, but the sympathizer is a spy novel, and certainly the sympathizer is partly responding to Graham Greene's *The Quiet American*, which I read in college. That's a spy novel, and. Green is a major influence on me as someone who did go high and low using the spy novel and other kinds of so-called genre novels, uh, genres to talk about very serious political and historical events and issues. And, uh, you know, in The Quiet American, it's a novel partly about identity, not in the sense of identity politics, like we would talk about it today, but certainly the identity of the narrator of the novel, the identity of the quiet American, the identity of of the Vietnamese, all these are are wrapped up in this uh, this detective story in a spy story that is the quiet American. And in the context of the sympathizer, you know, where the spy novel is taking place in relationship both to the war in Vietnam, but also to the Vietnamese refugee experience in the United States, questions of identity do come up. You know, what does it mean to be someone who is not white in the United States or as, as an, as a Vietnamese refugee or as a, as a, as an Asian is a, is a prominent theme throughout a part of the book. And, you know, in, in Ellison's Invisible Man, we, you know, we get we get there. We get a sense that it's partly a spy novel in a very unconventional sense, because the novel is explicit from their very beginning that a black man moving in a white world has to function partly like a spy. And he has to be sort of undercover and and, and not reveal everything about himself, even as he's constantly observing the white people around him. And when I was growing up in San Jose, I felt like. I was an American spying on my Vietnamese parents. And then when I stepped out of the house, I was a Vietnamese spying on American people. And that theme of the ethnic person or the racialized person as a spy is something that Chang Ray Lee picks up and makes very explicit in his novel, Native Speaker, which is another influence. That novel was influenced by Invisible Man and in turn helped influence me. But in Native Speaker, the Korean American protagonist is literally a domestic spy on corporate espionage. And, you know, there's a parallel drawn between his spy work there and his own feeling of himself as a person who is spy-like in his double consciousness. So that idea from Du Bois speaking specifically about Black people as always seeing themselves through the eyes of others is easily translatable, according to Chang Ray Lee, to the Asian American experience. And I, I agree with that. So the double, double consciousness of racialized experience in the United States carries with it the implications of potentially being a spy. Because oftentimes the racialized person has to disguise herself or himself to function in the white world. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. 
From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Yeah, exactly. Um, I, I thought that, that especially in the first novel, that's just so enlightening as he makes his way through this, uh, uh, through Southern California and it's, it's set in the late 1970s and the, the, the various characters uh, that, he, that he meets and this, this, this act of constantly having to put on an ask and a mask or an act. Uh, um, what, I got a question. What, what, why did you set the sympathizer in Orange County and not your hometown of San Jose? I was always kind of wondering about that. Well, you know, San Jose, you know, bless it. You know, it's just not as colorful of an environment as Orange County. And also Orange County is closer to L.A., which which is the most colorful of all. And I'm, I'm, I was living in L.A. I'm still living in L.A. when I wrote The Sympathizer. So I wanted to set it in in a city that had a lot to offer. And San Jose, you know, not a lot to offer in a lot of ways, which doesn't mean it's not worthy of a, of a novelistic treatment, just it would be a different kind of novelistic treatment. And I needed, I needed a very um, sort of vibrant and exciting uh, environment for the sympathizer to operate in. And historically, you know, Los Angeles is close to Camp Pendleton, a couple hours away. Camp Pendleton is one of the major refugee resettlement centers for Vietnamese refugees. And in fact, uh, a lot of them initially went to L.A., in, nine, in 1975 and in the 1970s. And eventually there was a, a larger migration um, an hour away to Orange County, to the cities there, I think partly because it's more affordable there. Uh, but initially there was quite a few Vietnamese people in Los Angeles and they did things like open the first uh, you know, uh, nightclub there in Los Angeles. So it made, made historical sense to, to put them there in, in, in the midst of um, not just what the Vietnamese community was doing, but then it would also put them in proximity to things like Hollywood, which I wanted to to satirize as well. All right. And, and also in Orange County is where you start seeing the, the alliance formed between um, the Vietnamese political uh, aspiration, Vietnamese um, refugees with political aspirations and the Republican party. Yeah. And it's, it's really in that hotbed of uh, over Orange County. Who is it? Is, is it Dana Roebuck? Who is who is who is the Orange County has its share of has its share of hardcore right wing Republicans. Roar, Dana Roebuck is one of them, but the one that I was thinking yeah. of that is, is uh, you know explicitly alluded to in uh, the Sympathizer is a guy named Bob Dornan, whose nickname was B fifty two Bob. Okay, and he was a hardcore anti communist, uh, long long term Republican congressman there. And there's a character called the Congressman in the Sympathizer. Uh, who's a little, a little more sophisticated than Bob Dornan, but nevertheless is meant to evoke this kind of patriotic anti-communism that finds, as you said, easy alignment with the Vietnamese anti-communists who came to Orange County. And of course, the problem that had to be overcome is that, you know, some of these Orange County Republicans are racist. They don't like non-white people. And so you had to overcome that racism to see that they had natural allies with the Vietnamese anti-communists. And I think that alliance is now strongly forged. Right, that was that was the figure I was thinking of. I was mixing up my uh, or- white Orange County Republican uh, political figures. Forgive me. Um, so, without without giving away too much, and we've been we've been alluding to this, but can you just tell us the without you know avoiding spoilers, um, the basic plot storyline of the two novels? It's the um, uh, the trajectory the main character goes through. The Sympathizer is about a communist spy in the South Vietnamese army in April 1975 when Saigon falls or is about to be liberated. And his mission is to flee with the remnants of that army to the United States where he's going to spy on their efforts to take their country back. Um, And he's part French and part Vietnamese. His father is a French priest who molested this 13-year-old Vietnamese girl who became 
the sympathizer's mother. So there's a spy novel action. There's a spy novel going on. There is a refugee novel going on as he resettles in the United States and deals with all these cultural confusions. Um, there's also a novel here about the colonization that the French did in in uh, in Vietnam. Although that's a more of a, a minor theme that I'll amplify more in the committed. And so there's all kinds of you know spy novel types of adventures or misadventures that will take place in the United States. But then eventually he does, in fact, go back with a suicide squad to try to invade Vietnam. Um, and that this, this, by the way, almost everything in The Sympathizer is based on real historical events or personages. Um, and not to give anything away, but by the end of The Sympathizer, he has to flee Vietnam yet again as a refugee. And that's exactly where The Committed picks up. So The Committed you know, starts on that refugee boat and he eventually ends up in Paris of 1982 in the City of Light. And the project of this novel is to pull the plug on the City of Light. So here, the French who got off relatively easy in The Sympathizer become the main subject of attention, the question of French colonization and the civilizing mission that the French did, you know, which allowed the French to do all kinds of uncivil, horrible things in its colonies is fully addressed in this novel. And he's no longer a spy and he's deeply traumatized. So he makes some bad choices and he, he falls in with a gang of ethnic Chinese Vietnamese gangsters while he's living with his so-called aunt, a woman who is a, a member of the elite. She's also French and Vietnamese, and she is an editor, and she hangs out with left-wing intellectuals and politicians, and they have a, they have a need for hashish. So he becomes the supplier between these two worlds. Um, and again, we get the high and the low brought together, uh, a, a tale of, of, of ethnic gangsters who are rubbing shoulders eventually with these, these white left-wing intellectuals. And so the novel gets to have a lot of fun on the crime story and to bring in these serious ideas and to satirize the French left who are ripe objects for satire. Yeah. The the committed reminds me a bit of the film Outside the Law by the, uh, I'm trying to blank on his name, Franco-Algerian director. And he his first film was Andy Jen about um, mm-hmm. uh, North African troops that served in World War II. And then outside the laws about the the FLN Algerian activists that um, uh, get involved in the criminal underworld in Paris and the porous nature of um, underground political activism and underground organized crime and I, I saw the, um, that no, your novel resonating with uh, some of the ideas there. Um, there's there's a lot of history in um, in these books and um, you, you noted that the the events that happen in the sympathizer are, are all drawn from. Uh, uh, historical events. Did you did you do much research for this? I mean, you, I know that you cite um, a book I love, Alfred McCoy's Politics of Heroin at the end of the Committed. Um, but um, well, I mean, did you? Was there an aspect of historical research? I mean, this is this this podcast is, after all, new books in history. So I need to justify why why we're talking fun novels. Well, I'm I'm very intimately aware of Vietnamese American history. So in the Sympathizer, um, on the one hand, there wasn't that much research because I grew up in this Vietnamese American world and was deeply curious about all the stuff that involved Vietnamese Americans. So it's easy to just plug in a lot of stuff that I already knew was was taking place. So the the research in the Sympathizer was oftentimes not so much broadly historical, like you know, did this event happen? but was instead very fictional. Like, how do I recreate the fall of Saigon? How do I recreate the making of uh, a movie, uh, American movie in the Philippines? So that was non-scholarly research, really. That was about reading journalism and, and journalistic accounts. Now, The Committed is set in a world that I'm less familiar with, which is Paris and France and uh, the lives of Vietnamese 
people there and their their descendants who became French. And, and also the, the, world, the world of organized crime. And the world of organized right. crime, right. And, I, don't, I don't know what your department meetings are like, but uh, I don't know. If- <laughs> yeah. Uh, so I don't know a whole lot about all, a lot of these things. And so one of the ways that I try to get around that was to make my character, the narrator, the sympathizer, an outsider to French society. Now, he, he did study French in Vietnam. He went to the Lycée. But he hasn't, he hasn't spoken French in 20 or something so years. Um, and so when he arrives, and he's never been to France. So when he arrives, he's a newcomer to France. His French is rusty. So if there are any mistakes that happen in the book in terms of the depiction of French culture and French language, I blame it on him as being someone who doesn't completely understand what's taking place. And then that meant that I think the level of detail in the book is a little bit different than the level of detail in The Sympathizer. I think there's enough detail in the in the committed so that we get a sense of gritty urban Paris, um, the world of refugees and immigrants in the early 1980s. And thankfully, geographically, I don't think Paris has changed that much since the early 1980s. So I didn't have to try to think about how Paris looked back then that was radically different than how it might have looked today. But there, there's a, uh, you know, I mean, I, I was careful in, in like putting in certain details, but not having to worry about putting in like every single street name or every single cafe name that they, that they, that they went to. So there's a certain, certain level of gauziness in the depiction here. And I did do some research with, you know, Alfred McCoy's politics of heroin and, uh, and uh, Giselle Bousquet's behind the bamboo hedge, which is, I think the only account I could find of the lives of Vietnamese refugees in 1970s and 1980s Paris, a very useful account and some, you know, photo books, basically um, uh, one book of photos about, about Asians in Paris from which I found the key photograph that appears at the end of this book about um, Vietnamese, uh, French, the French of Vietnamese descent, a small contingent of whom participated in the 1984 um, march for immigrants and against racism that took place throughout France and, and in Paris, which was, I think, the first major manifestation of that kind of sentiment um, in France. And then also a book called Race, Sex et Colonie, uh, Race, Sex and Colonies, um, massive compendium of photos and images depicting the French colonial fantasies and imagination in their colonies, which are, you know, the deeply orientalist, racist, sexist imagination. I could draw on all of those images and they would, they, those, those ideas are very specific to one scene in the book, but also they, the sense of that French orientalism is pervasive throughout the novel. Um, and so a lot of it though, I just had to imagine like the world of French intellectuals. I met a few French intellectuals, but you know, a lot of it is based just on what I've read in newspaper accounts and, my suppositions about what these French intellectuals must be like based on the scholarship that they produced, you know, for example, the fetishization of China by a certain element of the French left-wing intellectual set in the 1970s is being referenced here with the character of the Maoist PhD. Um, BFD and other French intellectual evokes many different kinds of people, but probably the most prominent being DSK, Dominique Strauss-Kahn, a leader of the French Socialist Party, you know, who was alleged to have raped a black maid in his hotel never convicted, but you know, what came out during the trial was that he and his friends had a high-end prostitution ring. Now, these guys are members of the left, you know, very upstanding members of society, and yet they're indulging in this kind of stuff, and that appears in the novel as well. Yeah, that um I thought that that scene um that's uh it's a it's a let's just say it's a very decadent party um where you're sort of skewing the the corruption of the this supposed uh elite French left which is very enamored with wealth and comfort and and luxury, um, and you tie that with um, the the Orientalist obsession and also just the um, 
the the not just orientalism in the Saidian sense, but the but also the sort of sexualized orientalism and creating the 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 other as this uh, sexual playground for uh, white men, be it colonial or post colonial. But that was like a really really rich and powerful scene in in that book. Um, so in there's a lot of violence in both books, uh, and, but the committed is really soaked in blood. Um, and there are several torture scenes. And also, I think one of the most accurate descriptions of the the emotional impact of a street fight that I've read in some time. Um, I, it, the, um, the, when the, the street fight starts, it just goes into this long, 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 several page run on sentence. And like the way that you put that together, that really sort of captured the the intensity of that kind of uh, physical violence on on one sort of mind and, and the body, um, and for but for me, some of the violence in the committed resonated. Um, hopefully, I'm not offending you with this, but with the films of Quentin Tarantino, um, and and maybe this is me because I, I was a graduate student in the 1990s and uh, spent um, several years living in France, and that's when Pulp Fiction got big and it was really big in France. And so, in my mind, a lot of that sort of Quentin Tarantino stuff is associated with, uh, with Paris. Uh, um, but, um, the, uh, at other times the violence directly engages Fanon and especially the sort of the Fanonian idea of violence as a cleansing force for the colonized man. And, uh, and, I, and I'm specifically gendering that in regards to Fanon's writing, because I think it is, he, he's doing a, a very gendered, um, argument there. But what's what's your relationship with violence? Your your read on violence? What did you what did you want to say about violence and and violence in the context of um, colonization and decolonization with these books? Well, I think one of the the Italian reviews of the novel that I've liked is where the reviewers characterize part of part of the book as being uh, Dostoevsky as rendered by Tar- by Tarantino. Now that's perfect. That's exactly you know I, I, I love that description. Uh, Okay. This goes back to the high and low aspect uh, that that the, that runs throughout the work. You know that uh, the violence on the one hand is pulpy violence, and I think yes, I'm not offended by the reference to Tarantino because I watched all those Tarantino movies. I'm I'm generally a fan of Tarantino, even if sometimes he says the wrong thing, which is fine. Um, you know, but I'm 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 attracted to that kind of pulp fictional kind of violence in his movies. They're very smartly done, but also just in general, the world of pulp fiction violence. It's entertaining for a certain kind of reader, which is my me. Um, and I wanted that entertainment aspect in the book. And of course, it wor- works perfectly well with the gang's, gangland story of the mafia and organized crime. So there's that going on. And then there is this question, the high-minded question of when is violence permissible and necessary in the context of revolution? So I, I, you know, I, I read Fanon in college, both uh, Black Skin, White Masks and the, the Wretched of the Earth. And so I think I've been wrestling with with him for quite a long time. Um, my thinking about him lay dormant for a long time after graduate school, but I thought it would be appropriate to come back to him here and try to figure out my own thinking on the, on the question of violence. Because in the, in the context in which he's talking about the Algerian revolution of the 1950s, uh, it's arguable that violence was inevitable because of what the French were doing there. Um, could a nonviolent revolution have succeeded in, in Algeria, for example? Maybe, maybe not. I mean, there are specific situations in which nonviolence can work and maybe in situ- other situations where it can't. So maybe, you know, we can't, I don't think we can disattach Fanon from the specific situation that he's arguing for. But some of his claims, I think, are, are meant to be transcendent beyond the local 
situation. So when he says in French, like violence detoxifies, uh, that's 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 you know violence detoxifies. The, the, the colonized man can 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 get rid of the impact of colonization by taking violence uh, upon himself. And I think that's meant to be understood in a much broader context than only the Algerian revolution. So I think that there is some truth to that. I assume violence can detoxify, can you know render the colonized man into a more independent uh, decolonizing subject. But is that a universal truth? And I had a hard time, you know, with Fanon in college trying to think outside of that. Like, okay, well, who am I to say that Fanon is wrong in this respect? But here in this in this book, I try to present an alternative because there's a connection between the detoxification of decolonizing violence and this criminal pulpy fiction violence. Because it's totally possible, I think, that one of the consequences of becoming violent is not that you detoxify, but that you continue to toxify yourself. There's a theme in the committed of toxic masculinity that's there in the sympathizer as well. And these gangsters, you know, they're toxic. I mean, they're violent, but I wouldn't say that they're better men because they're violent and that their violence is not only due to being criminals, but is, is at least partly an outcome of colonizing violence and its distortions in the colonies. And so the narrator of the committed is interested in detoxifying himself, does recognize, without using these terms, that he is the bearer of a toxic masculinity. And he's also perplexed about the question of violence, especially since he's the perpetrator of violence and the object of violence throughout the novel. And so I'll give away one element of the book. By the end, he he has a long passage where he says... uh, Yes, violence detox can detoxify, but what if violence can continue to poison us? And what if nonviolence can detoxify us too? In other words, every claim that Fanon makes about what violence can do, he argues, my sympathizer argues, nonviolence can do the same thing. And nonviolence might have an advantage because when we uh, when we become violent, we replicate the colonizer within us. In other words, there's a mirror image relationship here between the violence of the colonizer and the violence of the colonized engaged in this master-slave kind of relationship. Whereas maybe with nonviolence, because it's not violence, we could break that mirror and use nonviolence to imagine a world beyond how the beyond the terms that the colonizer has given us. I'm, I'm wondering, did you have you read um, Anwar Ben Malik's uh, The Lovers of Algeria? He's a Franco-Algerian author, and he sets the story in in Algeria. In it, it goes back and forth in time, and part of it's set in um, the 1990s during the horrifying civil war, um, and part of it's set during the Algerian War for Independence in the early 60s. And part of it goes back to the early 1930s. And it's a love story between a um, uh, a Jewish Alsatian woman and an Algerian man. And in some ways, it was. It was one of the first first pieces I read that really refuted Fanon and um, or maybe not refuted Fanon, but sort of carried Fanon's logic forward and say, hey, look, you know, this idea of violence as a cleansing force, what's that going to mean for Algerian history 20, 30, 40 years from now? And by moving back and forth in time in these, these periods of like really horrifying, punctuated violence, he makes us this argument for that, that yes, it, it serves a role. Violence serves a role for Algerian men and the, their psychological process of decolonization. But what are the long-term consequences for the men and women of this society? 
Um, so I, I, when I was when I was reading the committed, it really resonated with some of the um, some of the uh, the things um, that Malik in, engages in. Um, I, I want to ask you: Do you do you like your main character? And do you? I, I mean, clearly he's a vehicle for you to put a bunch of stuff that you're you're angry about. I mean, it's 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 like really. I mean, writing writing this must serve as a real catharsis. But um, do you like the character? Do you identify with them? Um, what what what's not you in this character? Maybe that's maybe that's my question. I think when when I gave an early draft of the sympathizer to my agent, uh, he responded by saying. He's not a very sympathetic character, is he? Or not a very likable character. I can't remember which which term. I think likable character. And my response to that was, well, I like him, you know, because I understand him. And uh, I, you know, I'm a particular kind of a reader and a writer who is not turned off by negativity in characters. Um, that I'm, I'm in fact drawn to characters that don't function well in society yeah. who are if you like uh, if you like Celine yeah exactly you I know mean, and, I'm, and, I'm, and I'm kind of that person myself you know I mean my attitudes and so on are oftentimes not aligned with the communities that I live in I have very critical things to say about the United States that gets some Americans angry at me I have very critical things to say about Vietnamese communists that has meant that my work is some of my work is not permitted in Vietnam I have very critical things to say about the Vietnamese Americans which means that some Vietnamese Americans really dislike me uh, because I I I I, I, get, I I get really allergic around orthodoxy of any kind, no matter who's, who's espousing it. Um, and this sympathizer is someone who sympathizes with everybody, but he's also allergic to a lot of social norms as well, because, because of his ability to see issues from both sides, he can sympathize with the supposed enemy, but because he can adopt their point of view, he can see the limitations of the orthodoxy of his own side, whatever that happens to be. And he is an alter ego. Um, I took that experience of feeling like a spy growing up and I created a character who was really a spy, much more interesting than me and put him under much more extreme circumstances that would be more entertaining and compelling for, for readers. So a lot of me is within him. And, and going back to that footnoting issue, I, I can say a lot of things that I believe in through him without having to prove anything. You know, if, if you don't like it, I can say, hey, it's a, it's a novel. It's fiction. You know, take it up with the sympathizer, not with me. Uh, are there things about him that are not me? Well, I mean, he's he's a he's he's mixed race. He's uh, and I'm not mixed race, but I guess growing up as a Vietnamese American, you, I guess you could argue in some allegorical way there's some kind of mixing happening there. Uh, but he's a he's a liar. He's a, uh, an alcoholic. He's a womanizer. He's a spy. Ultimately, he's a murderer. I'm none of those things except you know I drink a lot. So I mean that's like the only thing in in, in sort of an autobiographical way that I share with the sympathizer. Um, so there are vast differences between me and him as a person, but I think psychologically we share quite a bit. Yeah. And the, the books, the books are obviously, you know, about the Vietnamese, uh, refugee diaspora, but they're also a lot about whiteness. And, um, in particular, you know, you sort of engage Edward Said's Orientalism and in the ways in which Euro-Americans construct a, um, a self-serving image of Asia and Asians, that works as their reality as it as it serves their needs. Um, and you write characters that represent various types of annoying white people. Um, one of my absolute favorite, and <laughs> you can guess why, one of my absolute favorite is the white male American professor of um, Oriental Studies who wants to tell the Asians what they think <laughs> and how they how they understand things. Um, the 
in the sympathizer, the, um, the, the American filmmakers, those characters are, are amazing. And, um, and then in the committed, your caricatures of the French intellectuals are spot on. And I love that, um, you know, you, you have the fictionalized version of Dominique Strauss-Kahn, DSK, you, you call this guy BFD or BFD. Uh, you have the Maoist PhD and, um, you know, in, in my mind around the house, I've been, uh, uh, I've been, um, calling, uh, as I get ready for this, I've been calling you VTN, you know, VTN with a French pronunciation. I think yeah, maybe, maybe, maybe they'll get some traction. Um, but tell us about some of the white characters you wrote and, um, what you wanted to get out of them and what, what you, what you want to get out of these characters and what you use them for and, um, and, and how they served as ways to critique whiteness and it's, French and American forms and, and manifestations. You know, E.M. Forster, the novelist, in his book on writing, I think it's called The Art of the Novel, uh, talks about the distinction between round and flat characters, you know, round being fully thought out and flat being stereotypical. Uh, he wasn't actually making a value judgment, from what I recall, on the round and the flat character. He was saying they serve different purposes in fiction. And uh, I took that to heart. But I also took to heart, um, you know, a, a particular strain of the of aesthetics that have always been influential on me, which is what we might call agitprop, you know, artwork that also serves a political purpose of agitation and propaganda and provocation and so on. And, and, and in agitprop, the flat characters tend to dominate, you know, because part of what's being done here is to make people think about, about politics and about political types of people. And this kind of aesthetic, I think, is not well received in my context of academic literary fiction um, and mainstream American literary fiction, which is supposed to be all about the round characters. Like you're not supposed to have stereotypes because stereotypes are bad, you know, and, and on the one hand, I can appreciate that being the tar- target of stereotypes myself, but somehow strangely in this world of where we're supposed to reject all kinds of flat characters and only have round characters, nevertheless, there's never been a place or very little place for people like me in the imagination of white writers. So, you know, when we appear, we are stereotypes, and when we don't, and then when when we should be appearing as round round characters, we never appear at all. So I think that there is a, a a time and a place for the flat character to be used, and I'm someone who's actually, who actually enjoys agitprop. You know, for example, uh, one of the plays that's cited in this book, The Committed, is Amy Cesaire's The Tempest, uh, the satire on uh, a tempest. I'm sorry, the satire on Shakespeare's The Tempest, and I saw that in production as a student at the Berkeley rep. And I loved it. I loved it. I, I was laughing throughout the production. I was totally into it. And I was, I was sitting next to these two older white people, a couple man and a woman, and they were, I assume retired. They didn't laugh at all. Maybe they were like repertory subscribers, you know, <laughs> and I was like this, somebody on a student ticket. They didn't laugh at all. And I remember watching um, M. Butterfly, the David Henry Wong play in San Francisco, and laughing throughout it and sitting next to white people who didn't laugh at the parts that the Asian Americans laughed at. So this is partly the function of agitprop. You know, you have to be in on the joke or you have to under- agree with the politics to find it entertaining and stimulating. I do. So there's a dimension of that in The Committed and The Sympathizer where there's a lot of flat characters of all kinds, not just white people. There's a lot of a- flat Asian characters as well. I mean, for example... There's a gang in uh, in the the committed, and they're called the Seven Dwarves. Seven Dwarves, you know, they're all flat. They just have one name, like grumpy and angry. And that's all we know about them. Okay, but for the white characters, I thought, uh, well, have a taste of your own medicine. You know, you, let's present you as a stereotype or as a flat character. See how you like it. Um, and also, you know, that I think there's some truth. There's always truth to stereotypes, and there's 
and there's important ways in which we can, we can deploy stereotypes in a productive fashion. Um, you know, typically the stereotypes of Asian people in, West, in the Western imagination is that they're, they're put there completely to service the Orientalist narratives of the white characters, and then also to be raped or killed or to be turned into sexual servants and everything else. And I think that my, in my depiction of the white characters, nothing that bad happens to them. They don't get murdered. They don't, I don't think, they don't get murdered. They don't get raped. They don't get abused. In fact, they're pretty much left in the same place where we began with them. They still remain in positions of power. So the auteur, the white male director in The Sympathizer, yes, he's subjected to scabrous treatment in the novel, but he's still the white guy. Though He's still the man by the end of the story. He's still making Hollywood movies at the end of the book. So there's a vast difference in my deployment of stereotypes and the, the racist and sexist deployment of stereotypes in Western literature and film. And in the use of the flat characters, white people as flat characters, they exemplify particular kinds of traits, which as far as I can tell, really do exist. So I've come across the department study, the Oriental Studies department chairman as a type in academia. I've been subjected to his kind of statements. You know, so I don't I don't feel that there's any manipulation of the truth here in what these characters represent. Yeah, I mean, I I I thought they were they, they all those those types really rang true, and and um, you know, I uh, I did a graphic history of um, colonial Vietnam, and one of the things that I really stressed with the artist is I, you know, wanted to give full humanity to the Vietnamese and the Asian characters as as she she drew them, but I said, you know, hey, you know what we can do. Let's stereotype the French a bit and make them a little flatter. So the 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 French uh, the images of the French characters they're they're all so over the top colonial. They've always got a glass of wine. They're always in white outfits. Um, and yeah, it was to this um, sort of like a fellow traveler move with you to like yeah, they, there are generations of using Asian bodies as decor in Western literature and film and culture. Uh, let's do that to the uh, to the white folks. Um, so on, on, on a somewhat related note, in the second novel, you really um, start to pick apart French racism and different aspects of that. And um, I don't know if you want to do a sort of, I don't know if it's even useful, a comparative racism of France and America. Um, maybe you're familiar with the work of Tyler Stovall. Um, he wrote Perry Noir, African-Americans in the City of Light, and then more recently, White Freedom, the Racial History of an Idea, which is a comparative history of the ways in which France and the United States built a concept of freedom based upon whiteness and black unfreedom. So, um, and, and, you know, full disclosure, he was, he was my advisor and he's my friend, um, but, uh, and, and, and really formative for my thinking here. So I was really delighted in the cycle of novels to, um, have you pick apart aspects of anti-Asian racism in California where I live and then take it to France and then sort of pick apart, uh, French anti-Asian racism, but also, wider French racism. So could you, could you say a few words on, on that? And um, I don't know, I, I don't know if the similarities and differences question makes any sense here, but um, sort of contrasting American and French uh, racial attitudes and practices of racism. I mean, obviously the French right now are, are going through a lot of discussions on these topics, you know, about the, the, the rise of, of uh, the French um, anti-racism movement and uh, the, the French version of me too. And, and also, you know, um, the assertiveness of minoritized populations in France. And uh, there's a certain segment of the French population that doesn't like to see this and blames these manifestations on American influences uh, as if, 
you know, American ideas that somehow have been exported to France. And that's, that's what's driving these kinds of uh, insurgencies. And there, I'm sure there's some American influence there, but, you know, obviously the American ideas have been influenced by French ideas and that the French themselves have a decolonizing tradition in people like Césaire and Fanon who don't need the Americans to tell them what to think. But there's, you know, if you go back to Césaire and Fanon, they're already referring to what happened to Black people in the United States. They're already building this sort of idea of a global Black diaspora or a global Black consciousness. And in fact, then, if we look at England and I mean, the United States and, and, and France, what we, in, my, in my thinking, what we're really seeing are two countries that have wonderful democratic ideals. We're all, we're all familiar with, the, with what they are. And we have two countries that are also imperial powers at the same time. And it's, it's the, the reality, in my op- opinion, that unless the French and the Americans or the countries as a whole, their societies and the dominant populations, unless these people can acknowledge that imperialism, their imperialism, is inseparable from their ideals, that in fact they work together in a contradictory way, and that the contemporary French and American societies for white people in these countries is an outcome of these contradictions, and that white people benefit from the legacies of imperialism, then we're not going to be able to address these particular issues of like racial difference or whether multiculturalism in the United States is better than universalism in France. And my stance is that neither the French or the American system uh, is going to solve these problems of racial exploitation and difference, for example, using only the rhetoric of universalism or multiculturalism. And the only way we can solve these issues is by going back to the root problems, which are still with us in terms of issues of slavery, genocide, colonization that are completely integral to the foundations of French and American societies. So I, you know, I would, you know, I, I mean, I, I, I think I, I would like to choose from the best of both places as in terms of where to live and how to live my own life, and I have a slight preference for the American version of multiculturalism, but I don't think the American system is inherently any better than the French, and vice versa, as well. So hopefully, the two novels working together will make that argument uh, for me. And then, you know, one you, obviously in the committee we see anti-Asian racism being enacted by white people, but we also see anti-Asian violence being enacted by the French of Algerian descent, and that's a parallel. You know, this this, this antagonism between between the Vietnamese and the Algerians gangs in in this novel parallel. You know, some of the conversations that we're having in the United States about anti-Asian violence here being um, undertaken not just by white people but by other people of color, including black people as well. Um, and, you know, I just came from a, a talk that ta Coates gave where he brought up the issue of anti-Asian violence, uh, denouncing it, but also saying, look, there are some black people who've been doing this kind of stuff. And basically, you know, racism doesn't make people better and that black people themselves can absorb racist ideas and can act out on them. And, uh, and I think that's true. And that works also for Asian Americans and Asians as well. I mean, we're also guilty of racist behavior. And so what we see in the colonial situation paralleling the racial situation in the United States is that racism divides and conquers and it gets people who have been subjected to parallel kinds of racism to act out against each other. That's a divide and conquer strategy. In colonization, we see the same thing, that colonization you know, is enacted against different kinds of colonized populations who should have an interest in solidarity with each other, but oftentimes turn against each other. And certainly we see that the French deliberately manipulate this. So if we look at Vietnam, part of the French colonial army were colonized troops from Senegal and Morocco, for example, being brought into Vietnam to subjugate their fellow colonized peoples. And they didn't see some of them, the relationships of solidarity. Some did, but not all of them. And so it's not a surprise that in France, in Paris, we would see people descended from colonized populations 
not see themselves in solidarity, but see themselves in antagonism. And so the novel depicts this, and it depicts a hope that we could rise to solidarity as well, as our as our uh, sympathizer says, but it's a very difficult task to work against the weight of history and the weight of colonization that's, that's designed to prevent us from seeing the necessary solidarity of colonized peoples against their colonizer. And one of the the scenes that really stuck in my mind, and you 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 captured a, a body of academic literature on being black in France in, in the space of a couple of sentences, is when the the narrator is talking to um, some African American jazz musicians at a party, and uh, he impresses them with his English, and they're happy to speak English with them, and then they say, oh, you know, he asks, but they speak French, and they say, well, we speak, you know, we speak French, but around the white people, we speak broken French so that they know we're African American and they'll treat us well. But if they if we speak proper French and they uh they'll think we're uh we're from Africa and then we'll get treated poorly. And I thought that really touched on so many things about blackness in France in the 20th century. You know, the 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 country that shielded Josephine Baker and James Baldwin from the horrors of Jim Crow, yet um, you know, behaved horribly to the Algerian population and to the sub-Saharan um, Francophone population within its borders. And, and, and that was really, I mean, you, j- just that quick little aside, and it's not even a full scene, just like summarized a, a really important body of literature. Um, you've been really generous with your time, and I've got two more questions before I let you go. Um, and the first one is going to come with a caveat. Um, we ask this of, of every guest, but can you suggest uh, – two books uh, for the audience to read. However, I'm going to put some restrictions on you because you're pretty good at tweeting out good books. So you're not allowed to suggest Charles Yu's Interior Chinatown or um, um, uh, Laurent Binet's The Seventh Function of Language, uh, which everybody should read. They're fantastic books. One's, uh, one, one is really a fellow traveler, the sympathizer, and the other one's a fellow traveler of the committed. So two books other than those two that you sure. think the audience should read. Well, The Seventh Function of Language is a very entertaining novel, and I read it while I was writing The Committed, and it was one kind of influence for that book. But okay, so outside of those books, well, given our, our conversation about colonization and so on, I'm, I'm going to recommend two books of poetry, uh, because poetry was actually a big influence in the writing of these two books. You know, there's a lot of playfulness, hopefully, with language, and there's an intensity of language that I want to achieve that obviously poets take as a routine matter, but in the world of fiction, maybe not, maybe not so much. Uh, so Natalie Diaz's post-colonial love poem is, you know, she's a native, <clears throat> native American poet. <clears throat> and the, the title signals that, you know, she's, what she's interested in, what, what she's interested in is this colonizing relationship of the United States to its indigenous, uh, to indigenous peoples. It's a beautiful, beautiful book, uh, very graceful, but also very uh, political at the same time. And then Don Mi Choi's uh, DMZ Colony. Um, you know, she, she's a poet, uh, Korean American poet, who characterizes herself as engaged in anti-colonial poetics, which I think I'm hopefully aspiring to do as well. And in DMZ Colony, also a beautiful book, she takes on this question of the Korean War, which has never ended, and its aftermath, and the devastating consequences for the Korean people, especially when we think about how it was not just Americans killing Koreans, but it was Koreans killing Koreans, and not just even North versus South, but like South Koreans killing other South Koreans whom they suspected of being communists. And she calls Syngman Rhee, the leader of the uh, the Republic of Korea, the South Korea at the time, the American-backed angel of genocide. Um, and so it's a very forceful 
forceful book, but also a beautifully written book as well. Yeah, and and yes, you do take a poetic license with the the word, and especially in the committed. And I really enjoyed it. It reminded me a bit of um, was it Saffron Fowler's first novel, um, the one about the Ukraine and anti-Semitism. Um, everything is illuminated, and the way in which um, all of a sudden words on the page start to do unexpected things. And um, it's, you know, as a reader, it's just an absolute delight. Um, finally, what are you working on now? What can you hope to see from me next? And um, I don't know, will there be a third novel in this cycle? Uh, so what I'm working on now is a nonfiction book. You know, it's, it's, it's memoristic, um, drawn from, you know, the personal autobiography that I've spent most of my life avoiding. Uh, but, you know, I've been writing increasingly personal autobiographical essays. Uh, and so, a lot of those stories are going to, are in the book, but also looped in or woven in with a lot of what we talked about today in terms of the fact that, you know, I'm interested in making critiques about culture and politics and representation and race and America and colonization. All that stuff will be woven in with the personal story. Um, and then after I'm done with that, hopefully later this year, I can turn my attention to the third and final installment of the Sympathizer trilogy, where he will, in fact, return to Southern California of the mid to late 1980s. And this is my time. You know, this is my adolescence. And there's so much I want to talk about, everything from Reagan to Star Wars, both the movie and the, and the you know, missile initiative and uh, Iran-Contra and uh, the fact that the CIA was pumping supposedly, you know, crack cocaine into South Central Los Angeles. All of that is going to be hopefully woven into a story of the sympathizer coming back to make amends and seek revenge. Fantastic. I look forward to that. Um, Vitan, thank you so much for speaking with me today. Hey, Mike, it was great talking to you again. You do, in fact, look like the department chair of Oriental Studies in the sympathizer. So hopefully we can get you in to a TV adaptation or at least someone who looks like you. Well, you know, I, I didn't. I don't know if you wanted to reference that, but you did tweet that um, it's been optioned, and uh, I immediately. Uh, I'm, I'm a reply guy, so I said, "I want the role of the Department of Oriental Studies." That would, for me, that would be a very cathartic uh, uh, role because I <laughs> to act out some of the things I've had to deal with over the years. So keep keep me in you mind. Do. Put me in your role. Absolutely. So this has been a conversation with Professor Viet Tong Wen about his novels, The Sympathizer and The Committed. I'm your host, Michael Van of Sacramento State University, and this has been an episode of New Books in History, a channel on the New Books Network. Thank you for listening.